The 2021 Sobe Art Award is open for nominations. Shining a spotlight on our country's extraordinary visual arts scene, this preeminent prize for emerging contemporary artists in Canada is now open to all ages. Nope, sorry, I'm making too much of a meal of that. But it is a big deal. It used to be for people under 40. It's a big deal. Okay, it's open now to it's people Now it's for adults. <laughs> it's Sobe's behind the green door. <laughs> like a really vintage porn deep cut there for everyone. <laughs> Since 2002, the award has been supporting the career of emerging Canadian artists through financial support and recognition. This year, the award will see increased financial support, particularly to the 20 long-listed artists, to help them through the crisis that the COVID-19 pandemic has presented to the visual arts sector. In all, $400,000 will be distributed. The five shortlisted artists will be featured in an exhibition at the National Gallery of Canada in the fall. Nominations will be reviewed by an independent jury. Together they will establish the long and short lists, as well as the winner, to be announced in November. Nominations are welcome from recognized agents, artists, and institutions until March 19, 2021. Visit gallery.ca to nominate your favorite artist today. Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. So I understand that you spoke to Rihanna Jade Parker this week. Yes, so exciting. Uh, Rihanna is a really strong critic uh, out of South London, uh, also a curator and researcher. Um, she works variously with Tate Modern and is a contributing editor at Freeze. And I understand she's working on a compendium of Black British art for the Tate Modern. Yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's something she touches on uh, in this conversation as sort of an act of responsibility. Mm. Um, she says to a, a generation of Black cultural producers who have, you know, basically little to no historical record to point to. This is, I think, a huge sort of art historical effort that she's making. I mean, it's interesting that this text or this compendium is coming out of Britain too, um, also in line with the text we're gonna discuss today in terms of uh, monarchical power over exclusion and inclusion of black voices. Yeah, I'd say that's a, a recurring theme in her practice over the last few years, certainly, is, is um, the kind of onus that black cultural producers um, are weighted by and challenged by working under a monarchy uh, that, as you say, has largely excluded them and we're experiencing a form of precariousness that is extreme and pressure from both sides, the pressure to abdicate the rewards bestowed by the empire. It's crazy just to say these sentences, honestly, and, and the simultaneous pressure to succeed against all odds. Yeah. So I think, you know, Rihanna herself has been called a member of the new Black Renaissance, right. for instance, and, you know, these are heavy titles to bear. So for Temporary Art Review, she wrote a piece called Sweetness in a Bitter Leaf, where she says, my own work and the work of my peers has been heralded as the new black renaissance. While flattering and appreciated, this burst of visibility and popularity could potentially be counterproductive and lead to the reason why we peak too soon as artists, become complacent, and in the worst case, simply reinvent the wheel whilst making no substantial change in the global art stage and more importantly, in our own communities. 
So we talk about that. We talk about, if not this piece directly, then that that sort of orating sense of responsibility um, that she feels, you know, as she's increasingly finding herself in positions of authority, um, although she stresses, you know, not financial security um, and, you know, how to wield, share and level critique across across the plane once you've, you've found yourself in those positions. So she reads for us a piece called uh, Letter from London, What is the Status of Black Artists in England Today, um, which was published in Art News this past summer. And it, it, as its twin targets, I would say it, it's criticizing, at least superficially, Steve McQueen, who's now Sir Steve McQueen, for accepting the knighthood earlier this year. Um, but she's also establishing a larger current of critical concern over... Uh, the measure of success for a black artist in the UK, effectively, and and also particularly the chokehold, as she puts it, uh, quoting Bell Hooks, the chokehold patriarchal masculinity imposed on black men. Right. Yeah, I think this um, this idea of people refusing these honors has been uh, has been more and more kind of in the public eye, and people seem to be refusing them more and more. In fact, I was reading this article in The Guardian, where it said that between 2011 and 2020, 443 people had refused either knighthoods, MBAs, or sorry, MBAs. (laughs) (laughs) No business school for you. (laughs) Sorry, MBEs, OBEs, and other kinds of uh, accolades. So the highest refusal rate apparently was this year, and it was 2.7% percent of the total 2,504 people who were offered. And it's really interesting to read these articles, particularly in more kind of self-congratulatory publications where there's always this list of the people who have refused these honors. They call them refuseniks, which to me is like, it's a weird kind of Russianization of a word that is just, it's a very kind of like, outdated like cold war idea Mm. of like somebody um like a threat to the nation because they are not accepting this award but anyways you know they always list like david bowie lucian freud roy Dahl. but then you also have people like howard gale who was a liverpool football club's first black player and he said he wouldn't accept it because he felt that his ancestors would quote be turning in their graves after how empire and colonialism have enslaved them. And then at the same time, you have an artist like Yinka Shonabare, CBE or MBE. I'm not sure where we stand on that. But he is a British Nigerian artist and he insists on the inclusion of the CBE in his name as a sort of gesture to that history and a kind of claiming... Um, but also performing of that like colonial incorporation into his work and his life. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to see the different ways that black British people feel about and accept and do not accept these kinds of awards. Yeah. I mean, talk about responsibility. It does seem that there's a real, you know, as I say, onus to um, public comment and, criticism wrapped up in these uh, honors, quote unquote. For me, 
one of the most amazing parts of it, or not the most amazing part, actually, this is just an anecdotally thing that that I thought about and made me laugh, but I'll say it anyways, was this um, this description of when Steve, uh, that Steve McQueen was at school with the YBAs and that he mm-hmm. once mm-hmm. went out on a drink, like for a drink with them and that he felt like it was a very isolating experience. Um, and it's just so... <laughs> It's so rich to think because the YBAs, I mean, they're like, you know, the popular kids in high school who grew up to be like used car sales. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Sarah Lucas excluded. Absolutely. She's fantastic. And right, I mean, we're really right. talking about Damien Hurst here, but it's just like, yeah, you imagine this moment of the YBAs thinking like, oh, you know, we're never going to crash. Like we're the best ever. And then you look at somebody like Steve McQueen, who is you know, one of the most enduring and impactful artists of our time and just what that, what that drink must have been like and to, and to look back at, at it from the position that they're all in now. Yeah. I, I think one of the, the best aspects of her writing is, is a deft and spare uh, use of quotation. Mm-hmm. That quote for me too, from Steve McQueen, where he's yeah. talking about the drink is dot 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 isolating is Mm. is quite piercing and it also demonstrates something she does so well which is sort of walk the line between um I would say a a fairly strong rebuke um of him and his sort of acceptance of this knighthood and and the success sort of tethered to it that you know he he strides now with through his career yeah um that kind of individualistic stridency but then at the same time, she's sympathetic. You can see that yeah. shimmer through. And, and of course, she goes reaching for company for Steve and, <laughs> and finds herself coming up quite short. So there's a real kind of compassion uh, at work within this criticism. Yeah, I agree completely. It's so much more complex than refusal or acceptance. So let's get straight to Sky talking to Rihanna Jade Parker about her piece, Letter from London, What is the Status of Black Artists in England Today? Published in Art News on June 12, 2020. Following a succession of qualified black cultural icons and personalities, including actor Idris Elba and architect David Adjaye, who appeared unburdened by the historical context of such a distinction, Steve McQueen accepted the award of a knighthood for his quote, service to both the art and film industries in England earlier this year. It was his third British Order of Chivalry, following an OBE in 2002 and a CBE in 2011. Given his reticence to defer to the monarchy and the legacy of the British Empire, McQueen confessed in an interview with The Guardian that, quote, it wasn't an easy decision to accept the designation. Quote, I can see that some people would feel hesitant, he said. As to why he went through with it, quote, this knighthood is one of the highest awards the state gives out, so I'm going to take it, because I'm from here, and if they want to give me an award, I'll take it, thank you very much, he said, and I'll use it for whatever I can use it for. The black British anti-colonial newspaper, International African Opinion, argued in the 1930s that, quote, the judicious management of the black intelligista, giving them jobs, OBEs and even knighthoods in attempts to combine cultural diversity with civic order 
in a political tactic to pacify a nation into acceptance of imperial rule. Since then, the appointment system overseen by the Cabinet's Office, Honours and Appointments Secretariat has been increasingly denounced by the public and even members of Parliament as acronistic, insensitive and class-bound. In 2003, poet Benjamin Zephaniah rejected the offer of an OBE, writing afterward, quote, OBE? Me? Up yours, I thought. I get angry when I hear that word, empire. It reminds me of slavery. It reminds me of the thousands of years of brutality. It reminds me of how my forefathers were raped and my forefathers brutalised. In her 2016 book, In the Wake, on Blackness and Being, scholar Christina Sharp wishes for her readers to understand the status of, quote, Black peoples in the wake, with no state or nation to protect us, with no citizenship bound to be respected. So how might our society better acknowledge those who serve it well? For McQueen, a survey at Tate Modern, the biggest nod from the establishment for any artist, could count as a just award. Upon entering McQueen's show there, opened in February and touted by Tate as the first major exhibition of Steve McQueen's artwork in the UK for 20 years, a visitor was greeted by two mammoth dual-screen installations fitting for a filmmaker in a setting almost pitch dark and equipped with purpose-built cinemas to host a small number of views at a time. But something important was missing. McQueen's first major film, Bear, 1993, was initially presented at the Royal College of Art and then at the Institute of Contemporary Arts ICA in London in lead-up to the artist's Turner Prize win in 1999. Recorded in black and white, the tension-filled silent film features two black men, one of them McQueen, wrestling naked and interlocking for over 20 minutes in an unexplained fight. Jovial in some moments, rough and antagonistic in others, Bear might be McQueen's most overt commentary on issues of race, masculinity and homoeroticism that are still very much omnipresent in England today. So why was it left out at tape? Instead, nearly all the work included was made after 1999, picking up from when McQueen's Turner Prize show that left off that year. And November 7th from 2001 is the work that has lingered the most prominently since. Given the state of the union in England, as it stands nearly 20 years later, the 35mm work focuses on McQueen's cousin Marcus in a static image of his tan shoulders and the top of his black shirt below a bald scalp with a long kilo scar spanning the circumference of his head. Marcus seems secure in a physical and mental space of his own as he narrates the story to new heirs in black London vernacular. His tone isn't smooth, but it soothes as, in one 23-minute take, he recounts the day that he accidentally shot and killed his younger brother while trying to engage a safety lock on the gun. The title, November 7th, referred to the date of the incident. As Marcus details scenes, including a four-foot stream of blood leaving his brother's body, the work is suffused with a certain heaviness but not quite sadness. Marcus leaves no room for self-pity or disarming emotions, and his tonality never wavers as he occasionally addresses the viewer to ask, Do you understand? As the first black filmmaker to win an Academy Award for Best Picture for 12 Years a Slave in 2013, McQueen remains a major figure in England long after he first evaded the invisible holes of a working-class London social housing estate. Through, as he wrote in remembrance for the big issue, occasioned by the opening of the Tate Show, quote, 
Hard-headedness and luck, or hard-headedness and talent. In a Financial Times interview around the same time, McQueen also professed a sense of solidarity with the figurative and literal sacrifices of predecessors before him. So that, quote, people like Stephen Lawrence, an 18-year-old aspiring architect who was knifed to death by a racist mob of white men at a South London bus stop in 1993, quote, didn't die in vain. Unsatisfied with the state's response to Stephen's murder, the Lawrence family called for the help of black leaders at the time, including Nelson Mandela, then the president of South Africa, who met with them and called on the government to do more. Suspects were charged with the crime, but the charges were dropped, and almost four years later, a retired judge and former soldier oversaw a public inquiry that would go on to describe the Metropolitan Police's response to Lawrence's killing as, quote, marred by a combination of professional incompetence, institutional racism, and a failure of leadership. Though two suspects were convicted in 2012, Lawrence's death and its reverberations, like countrywide riots sparked by the murder of Mark Duggan in 2011 and the negligence shown during a Grenfell tire fire that claimed more than 70 lives in 2017, remain in the national memory. The anniversary of Lawrence's passing was commemorated by many in April, nearly two decades after the fact. Lawrence's Jamaican-born mother, Doreen Lawrence, accepted an OBE in 2003 for her service to the community relations. And she is also commemorated in Chris O'Philly's 1998 painting, No Woman, No Cry, including in the artist's Turner Prize exhibition and now in the permanent collection of Tate, with Doreen shedding tears, each bearing an image of her son in phosphorescent paint amid the words, quote, R.I.P. Stephen Lawrence, 1974-1993. To consider history of this kind in artwork of such recent vintage is to better understand England's legacy of life in words borrowed by Sharps in the wake, quote, lived in, as, under, despite black death. The commercial success of just a handful of black British artists of the stature of McQueen and Ophelia makes clear that the trajectory of art as a career is unstable, with little assistance and still no readily available blueprint for younger generations to follow. Until Tate Modern opened in the year 2000, London was the only major European city without a public art gallery for modern and contemporary art. In the 1990s, the London-based young British artist's fame was decimated abroad, given the sense of London as a growing centre of artistic change. But in fact, London's art world was open only to some. McQueen studied at Goldsmiths College at the same time as Hurst and other YBAs, but he would later attest in the same Guardian interview around his Tate Modern opening to only a single interaction with them. Quote, I went for a drink with some people once, McQueen said. That was it. It was isolating. Once Charles Satchi became the permanent patron of the YBAs, Known to buy out entire shows of work, the group came to include its only black member, Chris O'Philly, at a time when his distinctive use of elephant dung within his work was very much in its ascendancies and receiving mixed reviews. Concurrently, the exposure of non-white British artists was collapsed into a post-colonial or identity-based construction, and the general discourse around their work was tone-deaf and absent of any structural understanding of the unavoidable politics that informed it. 
One example of a measure of success for a black artist in the UK that predates McQueen and Ophelia is Rotimi Fanny Kayode, who, featured in Masculinity's Liberation Through Photography, an exhibition that opened this past February at North London's Barbican Centre with a focus on gender constructions and work by more than 50 artists from the 1960s to the present. Born in Nigeria, Fanny Kayode presented as black and gay in the 1980s when he lived in London with his lover and collaborator, Alex Hurst. Experienced with the kind of contentiousness that greeted black artists in the UK, Fanny Kayode once wrote about, quote, Europeans faced with the dogged survival of alien cultures and their tendency to act as mercantile as they were in the days of the trade. Such observers, he continued with disdain, or in a mission to sell our culture as consumer product. In his 2019 book, Decolonising the Camera, Photography and Racial Time, British curator Mark Seeley employs his concept of racial time to signify a different but essential colonial temporality at work within the photograph, an idea that implies the images by Fanny Coyote. The 80s were a critical decade for black British photography, as evidenced by five pictures by Fanny Coyote in masculinities, including some of his last work before he died from age-related complications in 1989. His studio-based photography, much of its self-portraiture, is of a theatrical, sensual and serious nature, and it plays with conventions of expectations too. In Untitled, Offering, the conception of the hyper-eroticized black phallus is represented by a pair of overly large scissors. In a passage quoted in the exhibition catalogue, American theorist Bell Hooks encourages us to conceive the task of altering the image of black men, in the lineage of Fanny Kayode and others, including Steve McQueen later down the line, as a collective enterprise. Quote, Collectively, we can break the life-threatening chokehold patriarchal masculinity imposes on black men, Hook writes, and create life-sustaining visions of a reconstructed black masculinity that can provide black men ways to save their lives and the lives of their brothers and sisters in struggle. Amazing. Thank you. How was that to read it? It's been such a tumultuous six months and I, I wonder how it stands in your memory or if it's a piece that that you would be tweaking six months later substantially in your mind. Well, hopefully not. That's my, you know, my two main, they're not mottos at all, but, you know, intentional thought when writing is one, I need to write something that my mother understands and this is not because she's stupid and kind, she just doesn't care about contemporary art. So if I've written something that I know she wouldn't be able to engage with, then I've done something wrong. And then the second thing is, is exactly that, not to write something that I'm embarrassed by six months later. And that has no relevance. Um, so I, unfortunately, I'm not a quick writer. So something like that, which I should have turned around in like less than a month, took me three. <laughs> Thankfully, my, mm. my editors are very gracious um, and allow me to do the best work rather than the fastest. So I, I didn't realize that the piece was maybe in its initial pitch or commission sort of meant to file into these kind of three show reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk to me just maybe a bit about some of that foundational, like how was it pitched or commissioned and how did you sort of arrive at Art News as being the place you wanted to position this? Um, with Art News in particular, I'm trying to trace things back because I only have intentionally acknowledged my writer's practice since maybe 2017 so it's not quite fresh in my head to think about so I believe my relationship with art news 
maybe started back in 2017 or so. This was after I wrote with the journal Arts.Black, um, mm-hmm. founded by Jessica Lynn and Taylor Renee Aldridge, who were my first editors. If there's any reason why I do have a writing practice because of them, well, formalised mm-hmm. one. Um, so I think that came straight after whereby they were friends with some editors at Art News and had made a connection between someone. I was their first published piece of criticism for Arts.Black. So I guess mm-hmm. that um, visibility started there. But it's always been, I guess, an advantage being in London, a double advantage where this rise in Black British as well as Black international art, so, you know, very different peaks since Soul of a Nation and the places here in 2017 and those kind of big changes um, in, in the last few years. Before then, there wouldn't have been a need for any Black critics in London like that. For someone like myself that decides to write intentionally about contemporary and more than black art, then you're quite limited in the UK where you're not as limited in the US. So Art News, I guess, saw me as that person for a while, like the London reporter. But um, yeah, usually more than anything, I'm able to tie in any cultural and feminist theory that I uh, already engage with. They were one of my first, and they're probably the ones I feel the most comfortable with, with um, my more outlandish writing, as opposed to my other editors and publications. Is it something about their mandate or is it really just these editors that you've formed a relationship with? I think it's in particular the editors I've formed a relationship with. I mean, yeah, sometimes a crossover when you can see a sub-editor coming in at the last minute and trying to make sense of it as opposed to the editor that you've been going back and forwards with for like a month. Um, so you see the differences, right. but it's all coming from, an, in my experience, a very understanding place. Um, so I feel comfortable there so maybe to an extent their remit because really I do find it the most comprehensive especially their morning bulletins um quick snap at the art world again from American maybe two other major cities um than most other newsletters from the other publications that's for sure so it yeah. not only are they keeping in touch with the art market and daily art news and then reviews and criticism was <laughs> they're quite um yeah spaced out in that way and covering mm-hmm. a lot at once so yeah I think me being in London was always the advantage, but as well as being tapped into some of these sorts and spaces already. So that 2017 commission was for print, the same thing around London, chose three shows. One was Soul of a Nation. The second, I believe, was The Place of Hair, which featured a lot of the Black British artists from the 80s in South London Gallery. And the third one that's now escaped from mine, but it's the same kind of thing. In between that time, it was like more articles Again, black art in London was happening for the first time in, like, forever. You usually, like, sprinkles throughout the year. You might get one black art show quarterly is what it felt like in London. But since 2017, it's now, like, fortnightly. There are multiple invites for things that would never have happened um, pre-2017. Well, before we get into the piece's uh, construction and some of the subjects and your approach, um, I wanted just to to touch on your kind of positionality first onto this piece. You've curated for the Tate Modern, you've attended Goldsmiths and are a contributing editor at Freeze, among numerous other accomplishments. And I, I'm just wondering, especially too, as sort of someone who's been heralded as a member of the New Black Renaissance, um, mm-hmm. a designation that you've you've said is both flattering and appreciated but a burst of visibility and popularity that could potentially be counterproductive. So with regards to this knighthood piece, was there ever any concern for you around 
you know, who am I to speak out on interiority versus outsiderness in the British art world? Um, like, did you consider yours a privileged perspective to operate from, or was there any nervousness in in making these critiques from where you stand? Yeah, my friend asked me this the other day. Um, she asked me, do you ever get nervous, like, the morning or the day of when something you've written is being published? And I, I said very quickly, no. <laughs> I don't. Mm. By that point, I'm very assured in what I said Um so there isn't much that could happen on the post-publication side that I can feel threat for. There's been maybe two examples, most recently the Carol Walker essay where I've had like an immediate re- reverberating reaction across the Atlantic that really like took over a week or two of my life. That was quite ridiculous. Apart from that, mm. if it's out there, it's out there. So the position I'm writing from, which is also interesting that people see it differently, when people were aware that I was at Freeze, because I didn't have to make it publicly known until I became a contributing editor. Um, that's the reason why people would see it. When that was now widely known, the response is like, well, now you're really a part of it. So despite all your years at freelancing at Tate and doing da-da-da-da, now that you're a part of Freeze, you're now a part of the machine, which is, I mean, it's fine. I don't feel any ways. I know I'm living a, a poor black woman's life, so I don't really care if, you, if people really think this... <laughs> minimal access I have via freeze is what really right. has changed my life no problem right. <laughs> um and if that's what you don't feel but I'm moving very intentionally in any and all spaces I am that I don't have to justify to people but the results are there that I don't need to be credited for there's things that just need to get done and quickly and if we can do it as quietly as possible and that's better too we have this little thing called a box of black secrecy we have to announce every plan and porter but my position being that of those X, Y, and Z identities, um, especially working class, especially black, pushing back and those like, yeah, my my body is not made for gallery spaces. Something big, dark skin and rolling, that's, that's not something that is accommodated in whitewood spaces, mm-hmm. in the Tate or anywhere else. I'm not the mm-hmm. prototype in any sense. So I've always moved to those spaces as very much a counter effort to being aware of that. But I had nothing to channel it into when I was 20 and 21. Um, that was where my art history came from. That was in the very intentional black radical thought was like processed through my body. And this is how I then began to both manage and decipher black visual cultures at this point in time. And I still will remain this. I'm a reader before I'm a writer. So the fact that my first job at 16, I was a bookseller. And I think I was there until I was at least 23. So that's a long time to be surrounded by literature. Um, you know, mm. the different advances of access to publishers and these big discounts. And the the other working class white boys there were like giving me anarchist books to read and show me the black anarchists in their summaries. Things that I would never have been looking at. So I had this mm. intentional, informal political education from this black internationalist community as well as a very local one, which I'm glad to have had. But that is my entry point into black visual cultures. It came from black literature. It came from me reading words by people like Tony Morrison and Orlando mm-hmm. Patterson, average Jamaican writers. That's when I was able to visualise things, not because I was going mm-hmm. to the Tate and certainly not mm-hmm. because I saw black art, because I wasn't seeing black art in public spaces. Right. What is your feeling around responsibility within criticism, but but also as someone who has sort of ascended the ranks, so to speak? I mean, I totally hear the impoverished part, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm also, you know, just 
I'm wondering if you have any sense of responsibility as you've, you've achieved some of these positions or, or statuses, let's say, to, to criticality itself. So uh, despite me wanting to immediately run away from that word responsibility, that is exactly what it is. I'm, I'm answerable to some small network of care that I've assembled myself or has assembled around my life that I do have to answer to. Does to extend to the word community that you think might be large and like all encompassing? No, but it, it means I have a few solid soldiers, so to speak, that, you know, I'm in complete linear organisation with and these are people that I do have to answer to based on what I do and don't do. So right. X, Y, and Z, Rihanna, in this esteemed X, Y, Z spaces, what can I do to make some kind of, to rise the waters in any way? Right. That has changed right. a lot from the last five years. What I can do now compared to what I could even do last year is very different when it comes to mm-hmm. access and probability and just knowing more than what's taught to you. The same lack of blueprint for Black British artists applies to anything around Black British literature. I'm not encouraged to write. I don't have many examples of full-time or successful Black British authors. There may be two exceptions that at best so I had very minimal experience to black critics that wasn't in the academy. So that's me trying to read Paul Gilroy and Stuart Hall and Googling words every 10 or 15 pages because they're just speaking a language I don't understand. And this is me as a perpetual dropout. So my degree at MA at Goldsmiths was me as a non-traditional student, quote unquote, because I did not have an undergraduate degree. I just was quite all over the place, just trying to be a rebel without a cause. I had a cause, I just hadn't articulated then. <laughs> I was too right. busy reading and getting them frustrated <laughs> by, the, by the past. Right. <laughs> so the well, responsibility, I feel, for sure, I know it's there. <laughs> so these things yeah. that I do and how the pushbacks that I have to do is very tiring in any and all of these spaces. No finger I can put in any of them. Um, my relationship with Tate is, is just... It's like a bad marriage. We just go back and forth with each other. Um, <laughs> and like, nothing about it's going to change because as far as I'm concerned, they're public art institutions and what I expect of those compared to any nice blueprint gallery. But when it comes to accessibility, are two different things altogether when it comes to diversity mm-hmm. and so on. So, but I'm not there to be the yeah, officer of inclusion. But when I can do some kind of insurgencies, I will. Right. Yeah, no, I admire it hugely. And it does seem like you're not operating from a place of fear for your curatorial researcher status within Tate, that you, you seem to be operating from a place of of uh, independence, which I admire as well. I think people can often forget that they are independent <laughs> once these powerful <laughs> institutions start to kind of encroach (laughs) I mean when you've like snuck in through the back door as opposed to applying via a nice agency then you tend to move very stealth like Mm -hmm. yeah that's well said um so to drop into the piece uh let's just start with sort of its construction how you identified what you wanted to speak to and where these things would sit in relation to one another because I see at once, you know, there's moments of strident criticism in this. Um, and then there's moments that are some sort of um, evincing of something closer to sympathy for mm. McQueen, for instance. And you ride this wave over a deeper current, obviously, that's carrying your larger subjects 
uh, whether that's, you know, the plight of Black British artists with little assistance um, or the questionable meritocracy that McQueen seems to be espousing, or maybe more generally the myth of democratic access um, mm-hmm. to British art institutions, especially for Black uh, or non-white artists. So how did you identify, you know, what you wanted, wh- who your players were going to be, both on the sort of waves and in the deeper current, and how to, how to uh, you know, approach constructing a piece that, that does such nuanced work? So, yeah, so I have to think about, firstly, what's the format of the commission? Like I explained, it's under the subtitle of Around London. This is my second time doing it. So I know we have a space of three years between, um, which in that very short time, the art scene in London had changed dramatically for Black artists, especially Black British artists. So in a sense, in time when you expect there to be an overflow of opportunities and uh, extra eyes on you, and all these new commissions and rewards, which did happen, what didn't come of it was a consensus for collective movement and a wider idea of ourselves and blackness to at least begin to or try to attest to the, the 2.4 million black people in the UK, as opposed to this neoliberal identity of one. With Steve McQueen being as monumental as he is, Obviously, for some, he's best known as a director, but for myself, as I, I know that's the artist, and that's what I regard him as. I know a different angle of his work that I hadn't had a lot of access to. One of the other reasons why I was really insistent on going back a few times once we came out of the first lockdown last summer, because I have no clue when I'm going to see these films again for the rest of my life. <laughs> It'll be like another 20 years, another retrospective at the moment or something. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, these artworks are going to completely leave my immediate memory soon enough. I know I wanted to talk about Steve for sure. Most of, I want to say at least two thirds of the exhibition were brand new to me. So I went in there very open-minded, being taken back by whatever happened, being shot by things that I did find titillating, all those kind of things. What stood out for me the most, and this I guess is how I got onto, I don't even know, why did I even choose to write about men? That's the better question. Why? <laughs> I usually don't if I don't have to. So I definitely so scream, scream, Steve McQueen show is on. So I'm like, yeah, cool, tick. That's one of three. Then, and I probably thought, okay, masculinity just because um, it, it was another big show at Barbican. And I really like Michael Armitage and they were showing at Whitechapel at a group show. So I was like, oh, I guess this makes some kind of sense. But by the time I got to the end of like my shortlist, I was like, whatever, I'll write about men, sure. Um, so I ended up being the angle, but I, I knew I was going to address it within that realm but also not trying to make it the um, the man's man speech at the same time, still thinking about this collective, as I said, that's missing. So most other press speaks about Black British art right now as like this non-momentum ending forever in flux thing that's just apparently the most important thing that we need to cling on to, this idea of Black culture and Blackness, quote-unquote Black Britain, Without really assessing ourselves and our social situation, um, I do love art, but I'm all of these things before then. And I live in a real material world where £400,000 paintings don't matter, at least more to me, um, and vice versa to people who make it. So I can only take it so far. <laughs> what I try to explain to people, like, I'm, I'm in the art world, but I'm not of the art world. And it's no amount of riches or patron support that I could ever get that's going to change that. I don't need it to. So 
let's think about Black Britain as a nation as opposed to the Black British intelligentista that I see when I go to open parties and viewings who don't talk to me. <laughs> Those ones is who I'm speaking about. Um, so it naturally formed into that and it was fine. There was one film at the Stephen Queen show that I loved the most that I hadn't seen before. It was called Exodus. That was the only piece of work that was pre the 1999 The Turner Price show. Mm-hmm. That's why when I read the justification in the catalogue for the show by the curator, and they were like, you know, we made the decision to not include any artwork prior to the, the Turner Prize. We want to see what happened after this momentum win. I'm like, you are lying. Exodus, Exodus started in 1992 and it was closed in 1997. <laughs> so don't, don't, you didn't expect anybody to read this catalogue, did you? <laughs> From beginning to back, but I've got the time. Right. So that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> right. So I need to know some other reason. What was other, the other thing was very nice. I can quickly describe it. It's a very short video, maybe two and a half minutes. Um, I believe... McQueen was filming this in Dawson Market um, when it was still Dawson Market, you know, relatively still West African and Caribbean-based communities. Um, there are two black men in middle-aged to elderly, I wouldn't call them elderly yet, but, you know, two, two strapping enough black men walking around in a nice coat and scarves, and McQueen is following them from the back with a handheld camera. And you can tell they're aware of this young lad that's fun around with a video camera. They ignore him, but to an extent, Osa is inviting him to like continue this show. They're both carrying a very tall, fern-like and snake-like plants, ones that you would see in the Caribbean. So again, I'd make this assumption, especially based on mm. how they're dressed, that these are two West Indian men. Mm. Towards the end of the film, they make it known that, you know, they break the fourth wall by turning around and waving at McQueen once they get on the bus, making it known that he they were very much aware the entire time. In the catalogue now, Steve comments on the fact that, for whatever reason, he read it, that they were more than friends and something closer to lovers, right? They had a very intimate relationship, but not because they were holding hands, not because they were so especially close, but there was some kind of aura that he experienced as a viewer and filmmaker to think, mm, what's this relationship between these men? So between that and beer that's made in that same span in the 90s, I'd like to see them together at once, and I didn't get a chance to, but then I saw Exodus and was completely taken away by just a small context and really minimalist action of it all. It's to anybody else that's not interesting to watch <laughs> two older men walk through the doorstep market, whilst for me that's fairly parallel to my... My earliest memories, Brixton Market in South London, just being very Afro-Caribbean and mm-hmm. hearing particular sounds and seeing a whole, maybe three different generations walking around. And yeah, maybe sometimes it's with a very tall green plant because they're trying to <laughs> recreate the tropical place that they left for grey, bitter England. So that was the re- main reason why I want to look at male intimacies and, and really what black artists were happening in. What they were doing then and what they're doing now just ended up being men almost exclusively that I spoke about. Now, I guess I realised that McQueen had accepted the knighthood maybe a few months prior to that, so not that long ago. I was already aware that he had basically all of the rest of them. Um, They basically are lacking orders, and as he says in the quote, knighthood is the highest you can get um, being a dame or a knight in this country, by the monarchy. And... You know, he gives his justification. So I'm not quiet about how I feel about black people in particular in this country accepting 
nation statements and their medals and pedigrees of any sense. Mm-hmm. And in any way, like even even the people that take office to go down and have dinner at the palace, like why, man? Where's your? Do you have a principle about anything? Like who wants to go down there anyway? But they do, and they smile and they take their pictures. Now, for me, when it comes to the OBEs or any of the knighthoods, that quite literally is an emblem of the empire. There's nothing else to think about. This is all it says is you are doing well and supporting the sovereignty. Well done for you. English mm-hmm. subject, full stop. There's no other way to articulate. There's a long history of plenty of eyes and rifles and esteemed people um, giving it back and refusing it up to two and three times. It's very normal if you have... I, it's, I don't want to use the word backbone, it's just like, but it's just a very like mute point to me. Like This is one mm-hmm. fairly frivolous thing. Yes, it may mean a lot, you know, again, like the quote tells you, you're going to give you some new access and avenues, so therefore you feel I'm not that kind of black, I'm a new black that kind of situation, but it doesn't work like that. What I ask for is just for them to not justify it as some, again, revolutionary act where they're reclaiming the statehood in mm-hmm. the name of their said ancestors. And we've had quite a few black pe- black British people do that in the last four mm-hmm. or five years, I want to say, who try to mm-hmm. still remain politically leftist or at least, at least appearing to be, but still accept this very, like I said, like it's just very, it's offensive in every way possible. It's not even a necessary award. Like, figure out something else if that's what you really need in your life for the state to pack you on the back. They can at least drop the empire. It's not difficult, but they're not going to because mm-hmm. this, is, this is what they want you to know. So that's fine. What I appreciate with Steve's response is that he said what he said. So, unlike some like other historians who do like a whole big spiel, they'll write in the Guardian mm-hmm. and like don't don't do that. Just say you wanted it because that's what it comes down to, and that's what Steve said, and that's all I ask for. Just just to give me the most basic line that's the truth. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, mm-hmm. Uncle. Let's move on now. <laughs> but I just I just have to point out that you guys love these OBs, and it doesn't take you anywhere. It doesn't advance us in any way. But you just love you love to go and bow and take a knee in front of. Elizabeth. <laughs> That's the most ridiculous thing to be, but sure. Yeah, there does seem to be a kind of expectation, I think, for non-white artists to use these moments as uh, opportunities to leverage power or issue critical comment rather mm-hmm. than sort of just take the win, right? right. <laughs> and I think it's, it's interesting that you allow for sort of both sides through the very sort of deft quote choices that you make in the piece. Mm-hmm. Um, I also really admire that a lot of the work that this piece does sort of swings around questions, which I have to say as an editor, I'm normally sort of, you know, I'm, I tend to push critics mm-hmm. to make statements over, over sort of that rhetorical strategy. But um, I think you do a really brilliant job. Can you talk to me a bit about sort of how consciously or not you are coming to these question the, the leitmotif of questioning? Well, obviously it's definitely depending, but for the most part, I don't like to assume in, in, in any one writing, sorry, that I've given like the definite answer and there's no space for any pulling or pushing of these questions and ideas that I've presented. Yes, there are plenty of ways I'm declarative and maybe unmovable, but at least space for commentary. Mm-hmm. So with these questions, especially in this piece, what I had to do, I wanted to allow some room where where I was being clearly abhorrent about however I felt without flatly saying it from my own words. I didn't have to leave mm-hmm. a space for us even to move on. So these are my interjunctions between where I'm going next and past and past that. 
But this is my main thing. I don't want my, my voice shouldn't be the only voice in, in these pieces. It's my main point. Yeah, I wanted to ask about how you do your research. Um, I mean, in a pretty dramatic year, libraries are largely uh, out of reach for us, which I find really delimits the kind of thinking you can do when you're mm-hmm. researching, you know, dropping in for one book. And then, of course, you find what you actually want four books over. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> how did you attend to this work, especially for, I mean, you mentioned this piece took a few months, but I'm guessing it was written within the pandemic. How did you approach research? So with this piece in particular, the research I had to do was much, much farther I have to focus on more. Probably I focused on Steve a lot more because, yeah, like I said, I was reading through the catalogue, which is fairly detailed. Um, that took a bit of time. Thinking about, well, I'd, I wrote very long notes in the dark, I have to say to you, because that exhibition was very dark, so I had to be writing <laughs> notes with the, like, the fragments of light from the skin, um, just because I knew I wasn't going to be able to see it again because we were about to go into a national lockdown. But before then, I could say I was thinking about it in the sense that I hadn't seen it yet, but what do I what do I remember of Stephen McQueen, the artist, and not the Stephen McQueen, the director? And it was just very sparse um, flashes of his work and stuff. So I went in almost no expectation. And once I came out and I realised I had to go figure some things out, i.e., what work did Stephen do in the 90s? Because now I've seen Exodus that started in 1982 and I wasn't aware of that. I would have thought that Bear was, was his earliest, if not the earliest. So that's something that was new to me. Masculinity show was much easier because um, um, with Timmy's work, as expansive as it is, happened over quite a concentrated time because of his health complications. So that's been always been a bit easier to raggle with and I have more books on that that this monograph is my first and only book on Steve McQueen's work whilst I have several other reference books for Timmy. and then that new book that I cite from 2019 by Mark Seeley I read that in probably like three or four days or so but I had to give myself time to read that so this reading space like I said because I'm a reader before I'm a writer that's really what takes mm. up my time and then I'm frantically writing at 3am for no reason with loud music, Mm -hmm. trying to get through this word count that I've had a whole month to do, but somehow it's only come (laughs) together in the last 10 hours because I spent two weeks reading. (laughs) This will be the most common uh, admission of this podcast. (laughs) Inherently working towards a deadline for no good reason under like... Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I felt the same crunches when it comes to research especially because second to my writing practice is myself as an archival researcher so having no access to these spaces especially in the UK where so much of the specialist knowledge sits in if not the National Kew Gardens and British Library which is very particular spaces to get to very sought after mm-hmm. so you're going to be limited mm-hmm. least of all if you work full-time and you're not a student all of these things mm-hmm. you just need time you need to like spend three months allowing yourself just to go and read like two two things in the British Library because the only place you'll get accurate and accessible African and African or dissented people in this the UK so those two things are gone I'm like oh gosh of course the big questions, why is it not digitalized? You know, as someone who does <laughs> that kind of work before, I know it's never that easily. It takes a lot of manpower and money to get anything digitalized, even collections. So we wish that was the case, right? We wish COVID now saying to them, you know, get things online, but it just simply doesn't work like that. Um, so what we do need is these spaces still. Um, so that's cut a lot 
unfortunately. I had two commissions over last summer when it comes to film research. And again, I was staggered because I only really had online, but I got it together. And that's really my obsessive nature where I still know how to get things without having a, a way to actually touch it. I love the the references that you pull in. And I wanted to maybe, um, before we move into rapid fire questions, just ask about two final subjects that you introduced fairly late in the piece, both of them, which itself is already kind of a striking choice. The first being Rotimi Fani Coyote, mm-hmm. and the second being um, Bell Hooks, who you, who you effectively kind of bring your thesis to bear through mm-hmm. um, in that final paragraph. Can you talk a bit about these choices and, and especially their you know, the decision to position them late in the piece? So maybe I wrote it in a bit more of a disjointed way and it was probably edited down to something that was a bit more cohesive looking like this because that's always usually the, mm. one of the main edits I get where it's like, okay, we got a lot of information in here, let's <laughs> restructure this all together and then it flows. I see. So I think it was, mm. yeah, just better between the fact that McQueen was the biggest show in that sense is the most I had to write about. I think I wrote about another piece second. I think I wrote about Exodus actually and that part got cut out um, to make space for the others. So really I had uh, given most of the word count to Steve McQueen already. So it was always going to be what I opened in, opened it with and I could have just gone straight right. to the show. But because these things around accreditation and, you know, what, what kind of proximity to whiteness do any and everybody have, especially in the UK, who are very slow to address race, despite them being the empire. So that was always, that would have been easier. But the fact that he had just been awarded this Nightwood, maybe like Nightwood, or maybe a month before, or something like that, it just reneged something in my mind. So now I'm making that connection. I'm making this, this seemingly random connection to the African International Service, which for some people just, you know, find it difficult to believe that there were black people in the UK <laughs> the 1910s and so like actually doing things and publishing and organizing mm-hmm. these things you know our history does not begin at the arrival of some immigration ships so these are things I'm very conscious of anyway because you have people like SLR James Trinidadian theorist and Amy Ashwin McGarvey who was the first Garvey wife you know these people were in London organizing so for me there are very sporadic pieces of information and there's a new book out that also quoted that point that was made the way that they were very um, particular about being encompassed in the institution mm-hmm. of England, especially because it's so insidious the way it works. It's not a very loud um, attack, but it's a poisoning nonetheless when it comes to British racism. So this is something that was going to take up a lot of time. It did. I found a way to connect it. Now where. Getting to Steve McQueen again because this is someone again that Steve has mentioned. So with the Small Act series that came out last autumn, one of the taglines of the fact that Steve had dedicated that film to Joy Floyd and other victims around the world. Now with the retrospective, I think I read in more than one, more than two, sorry, interviews of him making this reference to Stephen Lawrence in particular. So the context, again, for Stephen Lawrence, that makes sense. His mother is one of many family campaigns around police brutality and deaths in police custody, which is what's normal in this country. Um, Assimilate into, like, more centrist leftist politics. That's the nicest way I can put it. Not because I need them to remain communist, radicalist forever, like, as far left-leaning. More times they don't start that way anyway. But 
you know, I'm not asking a lot when it comes to political education from everybody. I, I don't I don't need a revolutionary out of every black British person, but I do need some critical thought. <laughs> I need us to be a lot more open and intentional. Um, and when it comes to that generation, of course, are older than me, and I have some semblance of respect for them. I don't have anything to beef <laughs> Auntie Dorian about. She took it. She took the OBE because how many years, maybe kind of decades of campaigning around her son's murder and establishing an institution for young black mm-hmm. British people who want to become architects in his name, those kind of things. So, hey, if this is what makes you feel good to just have this X, Y, Z next to your name, I'm not going to beef you on that. But like I said, it's the ones who make a try to take a, a moralistic justification and there just isn't one. McQueen also heavily speaks about the YBAs being very closed at that time. Everyone's at Goldsmiths, which, you know, it's the university to be at that time alongside CSM, mm-hmm. etc. cetera. So the assumption is that they all knew each other and he makes this point to like, not really. <laughs> and then who, get, who, who becomes monumentally successful? Like McQueen, to some extent, is on Damien Hurst's level at this point in time, but who had that very long and flashy career despite, you know, gravitating from the same space as these other monumental artists. And the fact that like Crystal Philly has only really got into it via a collector. Crystal Philly's in the Tate collection because of these very particular things he's done, like this portrait of Dorian Lawrence using a Bob Marley lyric. Mm-hmm. As with Black British history, especially contemporary, that's maybe just gone over 70 years. If you are, again, using the word intentional about collecting those histories, it's very interesting how quickly things have happened in succession to each other in our recent social and political history of Black Britain. These things may be intentional or not. I mean, of all the pieces of Christophilius for the tape to collect, they use this very sympathetic, important case because the judge that I speak about who came to that conclusion about the London Metropolitan, it wasn't until he retired did he take on to that public inquiry. Before then, no one wanted to make a public inquiry as to why he was stabbed that many times at a bus stop around the corner from his house in a neighbourhood that had a very fanatic football club members, which you can imagine um, British hooligan culture is very ridiculous, at least before we sprinkle on some bigotry. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about Fayodi now. Who else is there? This is the question I'm always asking. Who else is there between the gap of the 1980s, Lebane is the one who won mm-hmm. the Turner Prize finally, then we speed forward to what the mid and late 20s, 2000s, sorry, before we even get to the 2010s, and then we have McQueen's. We have Lynette Yeardim and Boy Cates now. Fantastic. What a long gap, though, between them. And then I can only think of two or three people that sustain artistic careers the entire time. But kind of actually a kind of is that for Black British art. That's ridiculous. So now we're at a place right. with the most visibility as possible, the most opportunities that I've ever been in abundance at any one time, ever, especially now since the summer of uprisings. Apparently, like, the UK has wiped the sleep out of his eye and decided to do more than it ever has done before. It doesn't it hasn't bred a very accommodating, feel good, again, as Bill said, collective enterprise towards a black British art ecology that doesn't necessarily have to sustain itself but definitely motorizes itself. We need to be in champion odd I don't know. When I wake up in the morning, I have some kind of um, understanding and, and intention in what I'm doing, and we don't have that here. So despite all the opportunities, the status of the Black British artist is still very much in flux. We don't have enough examples, and everything that happened now is very, very new. 
Yeah, I can appreciate all of that. And it's, it's, it's important perspective. And I gather this is probably a motivation behind the tape book that you're working on. Well, yeah. So I was very specific about really fine-tuning what that means. It was a first an invitation to offer a text on black art in general, which is a bit right. ridiculous because despite black art formally and informally being like phrased as a subcategory of art, there is no book on white right. art. Let's not be silly. Um, yes. We can't yes. do that. And especially in this introductory way, it's like how on earth am I meant to cover six, around 60 artists <laughs> of a whole black international world? That makes no sense whatsoever. Um, I made the particular place for a book about a brief history of black British art because not because I am a black British person, but we deserve and need that specificity. That is half the reason why our art history and separate to our art history are political history in this country is so fragmented all over the place is because there hasn't been a consistent canon or writing practice of culture since 1910 that has survived past the next 100 years. It always gets cut by funding, gets cut by M15 services that were happily surveilling Black Power Amusements. They were funding Black British magazines while also following editors. It is very intentional. The fact that Paul Gilray and Stuart Hall are the main, if not only, academics that can be named out of Black Britain tells you that, you know, Paul Gero is still here, but Stuart passed away in, I believe, 2015 or so. Might have been a bit earlier than that. And these are the only people I can reference as sociologists and historians. That's the problem. So now in 2018 or so, you see a pickup of the situation. Now it's a bit, we need to get stuff together. And it's because we try to do, we either don't do it and don't have the opportunity to, which is definitely something to acknowledge. Publishing in the UK, publishing Black Ghost in the UK, again, has taken a sharp rise, but it has still very much stuck in the personal essay, growing up guide, you know, bad B, new me kind of avenue. There are only a handful of people who are writing history books. So if I'm now in a position to actively consider art history in a space that, again, has this service to a wider public, separate to myself, then this is what needs to be done. This is why if you don't write, it's never going to be there. I can probably name six books that talk about Black British art and only one of them is like, quote unquote, accessible via the price and its language. But even then, it's still not that accessible. It's still not, it's still a fairly academic book, just not academic price. So if I wanted to, there's no way for me to enter any kind of knowledge or primer of black British art, culture, politics. It doesn't exist. So whilst I know it's not my job, it's not something I'm going to take on the back, but it's, I know it's something I have to do before I even think about really theorising contemporary art. Yeah. I mean, it strikes me you're doing some essential foundational art historical work here, which must both be pressureful as all get out and perhaps kind of freeing as well, since there are not many markers to draw from. I mean, definitely, I think both them. This is very affirming. It's driving to know that what I am doing is useful, which allows me to continue doing it, or at least having the intention to continue doing it and not allowing it to just be something that happens, which is what I was doing with my writing practice for a long time before... I started my MA and joined Freeze a couple of months later. And then that's a lie, because even when I got to Freeze for a whole second, I was still wanting to see myself as a writer. 
I just wanted to learn about publishing and I was, you know, I was learning so much on print. And at the time, the editorial team were very um, covering in that way. So I was in this little incubus learning about um, art magazines from front to back and every girl's from top to bottom. And that was enough for me. But no, you're a staff writer and, you know, we have the 100 issue. You have to write something for this. And I'm like, oh, I guess so. I just know the arts and culture is where I've been at. <laughs> but in 2017, yeah. I still was not calling myself a writer. I was just doing yeah. things <laughs> and I left it to be that. So before then, I had, I'm having this very intentional writing and reading practice. I'm organising in large and very small ways with people here and wherever I travel to, but not thinking about a career, just being in my 20s. So by the time I have mm-hmm. to, like I said, this is how I formalised it. But so I'm glad that some years later, you know, someone, I get emails frequent enough that I acknowledge the fact that I'm being watched by people that you want to be watched mm-hmm. by. And mm-hmm. I still have a very discerning element. The easiest things for me, because people comment on this often, my relative assuredness and just quite, having quite stout positions. Like, firstly, I'm a black Jamaican woman from South London. All of those conjunctions there, this means you have a very unruly person as it stands. So I'm really, just why I'm not surprised or nervous when I put things out, I'm very... If I've decided, if I'm assured already, if my spirit feels perfectly fine, then I'm, I can't be shaking it in any other way. So I've never moved in this industry with any fear. Um, right. A lack of know-how. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a lack of uh, any kind of etiquette to some extent. Absolutely. But with fear, no. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Okay, well, on that note, I, I don't want to take uh, too much more of your time. So I, I might just throw a couple quick questions at you around your okay. general writing practice. Um, do you like writing? I like the process of writing. Do I like, you know, using my dexity and all of my 10 digits and type of stuff out? Maybe if it lasts five minutes, yes. After that, it becomes a chore. <laughs> Okay, so that's interesting. So you're imagining the process of writing as being one within the mind and then it's almost yeah. uh, an externalization that's quite tedious. Exactly. Uh, who do you write for? What I'm writing about very clearly is Black visual cultures, contemporary and otherwise. Now, whoever the hell happens to be interested in that, fantastic. Because whilst I may be writing with other Black people in mind, and like I said, Black people like my mother who doesn't care about contemporary at all, Whatever I write has to be accessible to her. She needs to be able to start to the bottom with with a good enough understanding of what I've spoken about. Whether or not she cares is a different question, but she should be able to understand. I think I've said earlier that I'm a writer for other readers who like to write, yes. Because it was something for a long time. Like I said before 2017, I just wasn't formalising myself. Despite having this Tumblr where I was quote-unquote publishing often, I have these great friends who decide to publish me more than once in their journal and again, attraction from then, from plenty of others. It's just been like, oh, yeah, it's something I do and I'm glad it's useful, but I've never thought, how oh, this is something you monetize and make a professional career. Absolutely not. Whilst I was very much yeah. aware there are people who are writing about literary nonfiction and in my eyes are critics, um, people like Dream Hampton and John Morgan, who were black American women that I had mm-hmm. discovered maybe when I was 18 or 19. And I thought, oh, this is how black women write in fact, in and about fact, as opposed to being novelist, which at that point in time was my main introduction to Black women's writing. I was writing creative 
writing poetry and or fiction, not non-fiction. So when that came about, we're like, not even just something as simplistic, it's like, oh yeah, if I was American, it'd be possible, but very much like, whether it's possible or not, it's highly unlikely. So again, let me sit for my locale, Brixton, South London. Do black girls get to be writers? Least of all, art critics. Mm-hmm. Which is nothing, I, I didn't take it very seriously for a long time. So all I knew is I was an active reader. I still am. I feel like I'm that before anybody else. And then I'm a writer. Maybe I can appeal to those people that feel the same. What do you wear when you're writing? Or maybe more broadly, what's your mise-en-scene? Well, it's changed a lot in the last year. Before before Corona came through, I didn't... I didn't my writing at home was like lying at a disgusting angle on my couch for two, three hours, um, which is not productive <laughs> in any way. And if I did, like, oh, I have to do work, I just have to go to the library. Like, Shoe Hall Library is maybe 15 minutes away from me and get to the city quite easily. Or so. That's just much better. I need to get up, get out, because I'm not going to do anything sitting indoors. Nothing like that, especially because the UK's weather, as we always have to whine about our weather, is terrible most of the year. I'm not going outside, <laughs> just for just for the bands of it. I, mean, I have to do work. So unfortunately, my ideal means on send is like a quiet desk in a room with other quiet people sharpening their pencils very quietly. That's what I'd prefer. But in the last year, I've had to make my home make sense. So now I have a nice little desk from Ikea that's wooden. looks great. Um, I have a good t- tilt for my laptop. Everything, you know, I'm, I'm angled properly. My arms are resting as it should be. So now I should be like, yeah, let me let me write this book. <laughs> So I'm hoping that's going to yeah. kick in soon. Yeah, yeah. That's what I've got it now. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, which writer, dead or alive, would you like to have a drink with? I would like to go for a drink with who I've mentioned already, Amy Ashwood Garvey, who was Marcus Garvey's first wife, who were both Jamaican internationalists. Um, simply because I know she was a drinker. Um, she owned a bar in London in the 1930s, which is technically the first mm. um, black-owned bar we had. So she, I know she was a drinker, so we can drink, which is fantastic. Um, I want to talk to her about the very early ideas of feminism she had, because, you know, again, the picture of a black woman from Jamaica talked about women's liberations in the 20s on a big stage. is not something people would readily call when you think about Jamaica. And I just want to know all the business between her and Marcus Garvey. I know they were basically like professional adulterers, just forever cheating on each other. Um, mm. And lots of drama. So that would be a great conversation. <laughs> over drinks. Yeah. Accompanied by a cocktail or two. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Three or four. Perfect. <laughs> Which writer do you emulate the most? Consciously or not, I guess. I've just turned to look at my bookshelf to figure that out. Mm. Oh, I'm going to try to be quick with this. Now, the reason why I try to emulate someone like Toni Morrison, who's probably a fiction writer I've read the most work from, in fact, it's both of them, James Baldwin and Toni, are the people I reference the most. I'm the most comfortable with their style of writing. Toni's is much harder most, probably because I'm not a fiction writer, so I can't write um, fanatically like that. Um, right. Between those two, again, I'm six, I'm 17 now in this bookshop, and this is when I'm 
seeing Toni Morrison already had come across because my mum had her books but just when I'm really entering it's like oh James James Baldwin I know of the name-ish and that's my entry mm-hmm. point so these are like the first two examples of language that was seductive to me so those are the ones mm-hmm. James Baldwin has a quote saying that the goal is to write a sentence as clean as a bone which is what I would like to think I Definitely not throughout the entire essay, but I'd like to think sprinkled throughout my essays, <laughs> I've been able to write a sentence as clean as a bone. Who do you read before you write? If you have a practice of doing that, I should say. Mm-hmm. I'll go back and read Stuart Hall a lot. I mean, that's another figure that I didn't get to meet as an adult and read most of his work posthumously. Um it's just, oh, it's just necessary. Again, it's having this, like, complete thirst of, of because of drought in Black British writing and articulations that Stuart and what he wrote 20-something years ago are still so compelling now. I should say the, the true final question that we like to put to every guest is um, a slightly elusive one but can be interpreted variously, and that is, what is the pleasure of writing? The pleasure of writing is literally those last few sentences you've gone through, at least four edits. Everyone's okay with this, this and that. And it's always like, you know, can we just, can we like tweak the, the end? Can we like end with like a super strong paragraph? Like you may have rewritten this three or four times, but then it's when you know this is the last time. And I usually always know when this is the last time. And it's like, oh yes, I've now written that amazing closing paragraph that was so important for all this time there is literally no better feeling (laughs) I'm finally done (laughs) Moments the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish with assistant production from Mitra Shiram this season's music is arranged by Ulysses Castellanos we would like to thank Rihanna Jade Parker for her contribution to this season And special thanks to all of you who are supporting the podcast. You can find us at patreon.com slash momusart. For context, we're currently pulling in just enough to pay our editor. I wanted to be sort of transparent about um, what the support is allowing us to do um, in terms of the podcast security and longevity. So through these small donations, you know, we're not currently making enough to sustain the whole team, which is meant as encouragement. If you are able to decide on supporting us even as little as one or five dollars a month, it actually makes a significant difference to our ability to continue. Um, It goes straight to our contributors and guests who we, by the way, pay, and to ourselves, me and Lauren, who both have cats. So effectively, to our cats. (laughs) This has been episode 29 of Momus the Podcast. (laughs) 